I'm Major Robinson. Leslie Messer. Mike Halligan. Joel Rosette. Mary Stranahan. Senator Dwayne Ackney. Marcy McLean in Billings, Montana. In, in Helena, Montana. Box Elder, Montana. Rocky Boys Indian Reservation. Colstrip, Montana. Sydney, Montana. From Arlie, Montana. And you are listening. And you are listening. And you're listening to. And you are listening to Listen First. Listen First. Listen First. And you are listening to the podcast Listen First Montana. Hi, this is Chantel Schieffer, President and CEO of Leadership Montana. Views and opinions shared by guests of Listen First Montana do not reflect the opinions of all of our alumni or organization. We are a large group with lots of opinions, believe me. If you hear something that makes you uncomfortable, we invite you to listen deeply, listen hard, and listen first. Welcome to Listen First Montana, podcast of Leadership Montana. I'm Eric Halverson, and today we are on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation, just outside of Busby at the Wild Rose Retreat Center, and I'm here with John Morrison. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Eric. It's good to be here. So John is a graduate of the Leadership Montana class of 2005 and a current member of Leadership Montana's Indigenous Immersion Initiative. John served as State Auditor and Insurance and Securities Commissioner from 2001 to 2009, during which time his major accomplishments including drafting Montana's initiative I-155 and led the subsequent campaign that created the medical insurance program Healthy Montana Kids, which now provides health insurance coverage to more than half of the kids in our state. John has given invited talks to Harvard Law School and Harvard Medical School, and he's testified multiple times to both houses of Congress. So John, let's jump in and talk about um, where you grew up, and I'm just curious about the people and experiences that influenced you when you were a kid. I grew up in Whitefish. Uh, we moved there when I was eight years old. Um, I'd been born in western Nebraska, and, and in those days, Whitefish was a small town at the end of the road with uh, not a lot of uh, tourism and uh, none of the affluence that you see there today. It was uh, very much a s small western Montana town life. Uh, it was a railroad town, timber town. We had, um, uh, you know, certainly a, a handful of people who were uh, into the, you know, skiing life, which was uh, starting to get uh, more popular. But, um, you know, most of the people were from railroad families and timber families and you know, it was a good town. It was uh, in the woods. <laughs> we spent a lot of time outside. Um, spent summers uh, with some other guys uh, in a teepee and uh, started working pretty early. I started uh, working mowing lawns and doing uh, other kinds of cleanup work on timber sites and construction sites um, and washing dishes and that sort of thing when I was about in the sixth grade. But we also had plenty of time for, lots of time for outdoor sports and uh, hiking and camping and fishing and stuff like that. And you've had, you have some political figures in your family tree, right? Was, was your grandfather the governor of Nebraska? That's right. That's right. And did you have a parent that served in an official capacity as well? My dad was a member of the Montana Supreme Court in the 1980s. Okay. Tell us a little bit about how their sort of political careers maybe influenced you and 
got you thinking about, you know, you've been a statewide elected official. So I'm kind of wondering if we can connect those dots. Yeah, when I was a kid in Whitefish, I didn't really uh, think a whole lot about it. But as I got uh, more kind of into high school, um, I became more familiar with their work. But I was always surrounded by, uh, you know, talk at the family dinner table about, uh, you know, about law and about policy and about government and about, uh, you know, fixing things that were broken in the community and looking for solutions to problems and, uh, you know, the the battles and the cut and the thrust of politics and stuff like that. So um, I guess it was kind of second nature. And um, I, I suppose by the time I was in high school, I didn't really didn't really uh, think about doing anything else other than uh, kind of going into um, a life that involved working with the law and, and working with uh, policy. A career in law and policy could go a lot of different ways, right? But you've chosen this, it seems like there's a through line in your career. And I wonder if you can speak to that. I would say in those family conversations around the dinner table from the time I was uh, little, you know, the the perspective was, you know, how do we make sure that uh, things are more fair and that everybody has a chance, that there's more opportunity and uh, that uh, the big guys aren't uh, uh, taking advantage of the little guys. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, that's been a focus of what I've done as a lawyer and it's uh, been a focus of what I tried to do when I was state auditor and insurance and securities commissioner um, and uh, just generally working with policy, uh, you know, tried to find ways to uh, try to give everybody a, a fair start and, um, and make the game rules fair as well so that you don't have uh, people who have all the money and power taking advantage of people who don't have as much money and power. So tell us about what drew you to run for office in 2000 for state auditor insurance commissioner. It's a big lift. You served for two terms. Tell us a little bit about the lead up to that run. Uh, well, the the true story is that I started to run for Congress. Uh, and um, I had done a fair amount of groundwork to run for Congress in uh, the year 2000. And then uh, Nancy Keenan decided she uh, wanted to run, and I was supportive of her, and um, I knew I couldn't beat her <laughs> in the primary, even if I wanted to. Um, and so I stepped out, and when that happened, a group of people came to me and said, why don't you run for state auditor? And I didn't really even know what the state auditor was, uh, but I looked into it a little more and uh, found out the connection with insurance, which... Um, I had worked with quite a bit as a lawyer um, and decided that if I were to be elected and get that job, that um, I might be able to bring uh, some of the learning that I'd had as a lawyer in that field to accomplish some things for people on a policy level. And so I said yes, and I stepped in and, and ran, and, um, and I was elected in 2000. Can you sort of table set for us, what is Healthy Montana Kids? And then let's go back and talk about how you saw a need for that. Healthy Montana Kids was uh, about the last policy project that I did during uh, my two four-year terms. Uh, and I did it unofficially because 
Um, you know, I didn't use state resources for it. Uh, so I did it on my own time. But I had worked throughout the uh, eight years from the beginning on different approaches to try to expand uh, health coverage for people. And so Healthy Montana Kids ultimately was an expansion of uh, CHIP and Medicaid that put those programs behind a single storefront uh, so that there wouldn't be social judgment around who was on Medicaid and who was on CHIP. Uh, but everybody would be healthy Montana kids. And then we made the tent much bigger, uh, allowing kids to enroll up to 250% of the federal poverty line when the, um, the previous ceiling for CHIP had been uh, 175. Um, and um, that had been uh, something that legislators had argued about for 10 years um, since the CHIP program was created, and they just weren't really able to uh, get that program enlarged, and yet the people of Montana clearly uh, supported an expansion of those programs. They were popular programs for kids. And so there was just this gap between the gridlock that was happening in the legislature and what the public showed in their uh, public opinion polls that they overwhelmingly wanted. And so, uh, you know, we just decided uh, to bring that issue to the people. I'm just curious about how you got the political winds blowing in the, in the direction to support Healthy Montana Kids. How did you get it over the finish line? Well, it really was not just the uh, last the big policy project that I did, but it was sort of the last chapter of eight years of work on health care. And I think that it all sort of was cumulative. You know, I think the things that we did earlier helped lay the groundwork for success with I-155 and Healthy Montana Kids. When I first started, uh, we um, toured the state and talked to thousands of people in uh, in a couple of dozen locations. Uh, and we asked them, you know, about what is it that uh, you need in order to uh, get health insurance into uh, your home or into your workplace. And what we heard over and over was that uh, people wanted to pay something, but they could not afford to pay what the premiums were in the marketplace. And if there was some sort of a public match to what they could pay, uh, then they would buy. And in fact, employers told us uh, for example, uh, a mechanic shop in Livingston that I talked about, a daycare center in Bozeman. Uh, these people told me, you know, we will provide health insurance for our employees if we could afford it. Well, I'd say, what can you afford? They say $100 a month. How much can the employee chip in? $50 a month. And so then that got us thinking, you know, how can we bridge the gap between what it costs to provide health insurance and what these people want to pay because if we can do that, we not only give them health insurance, but we mobilize the $150 from that workplace uh, that they want to pay that is right now not on the field. And so in 2004, well, in 2003 in the legislature, we proposed a bill about this that didn't succeed. Uh, and we turned around and we put it on the ballot in 2004. 
and it uh, significantly increased the tobacco tax uh, because there was a big cost shifting issue with tobacco that tobacco was causing medical expenses but most of those expenses were being paid for by non-smokers and so by taxing tobacco more at the counter you corrected that made smokers take responsibility for the costs of their choices there and then use that money to bridge the gap for people who wanted to buy health insurance uh, so we did that that overwhelmingly passed in 2004 uh, and we created a big pot of money and we enacted in 2005 in sure Montana this was the first uh, program that was enacted in America uh, that did that refundable advanceable tax credit idea put it into implemented that uh, idea what is uh, a refundable advanceable tax credit uh, a refundable uh, refundable means that it doesn't matter whether you pay taxes or not you still get it you get it through the montana department of revenue okay um, but it comes to you regardless of whether at the end of the year you had a tax bill advanceable means you don't have to wait to the end of the year Got it. it comes when your health insurance premium comes and so it's through the it's a tax program, uh, but it supplements your hundred and fifty dollars that you can pay for your health insurance. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we did in two thousand five, and it rolled out to thousands of Montana businesses and covered thousands of Montana uh, employees, and that was in place until the Affordable Care Act went into effect. Um, and at that point, they took Insure Montana down. Uh, but we built a lot of, uh, we did a lot of groundwork for that, and we built a coalition of organizations that um, were in favor of expanding health coverage. Uh, they included uh, traditionally Republican uh, organizations like the Chamber of Commerce and NFIB, and uh, healthcare organizations like hospital groups and, and physician groups and nurse groups, uh, as well as, you know, more uh, consumer-oriented, uh, progressive uh, organizations on the Democratic side, uh, labor, for example, uh, all those groups came together to support Insure Montana. And so we continued to work with those people. And um, in 2007, uh, I knew I wasn't going to run again in 2008, but I wanted to, you know, do something worthwhile with the last couple of years. And so uh, really worked with a lot of those people who we had developed relationships with to pull together the support for I-155. I'm glad to have had the opportunity to talk to you about some of the things you've done in Montana, but I want to expand out to the national level because you've had a presence. Obviously, I mentioned that you've testified in front of both houses of Congress. I think some of the work that you did in Montana sort of served as a model for some national work. Tell me about the accomplishment sort of on the national scale that you're most proud of. Well, I'd like to think that the work that we did in Montana that was uh, innovative was modeled in other states, and it, it appears that it was. Um, and to some degree in the Affordable Care Act. I chaired the Health Insurance Committee of the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, um, and uh, we had uh, some interstate uh, national efforts there uh, that uh, were successful, cracking down on fake health insurance. There was a period of time when there were a number of kind of discount companies and uh, fly-by-night um, crooks that were posing as insurance companies and looking for regulatory cracks they could hide in. And uh, we cracked down on those and 
that was featured in uh, Consumer Reports. Um, I also uh, was, uh, you know, involved in um, kind of a complicated issue to explain, but it's called the discretionary clause issue. Um, and um, I, I helped uh, lead the um, creation of a national model that's been adopted in most states. And what it boils down to is most people get their health insurance through their jobs. And there was a kind of a glitch in the law that was allowing health insurance companies to refuse to pay medical bills uh, for, for uh, people who got their health insurance through their jobs. And uh, we essentially fixed that by refusing as insurance commissioners to approve the policies if they had that kind of language in it that created the glitch, the legal glitch. Uh, and the insurance industry sued me, and uh, the case went to the United States Court of Appeals, and, uh, they, and, and the insurance industry said, insurance commissioners can't do that, and the Court of Appeals said, yes, they can. So uh, when that happened, um, it, it spread across the country, and it's uh, made health insurance more dependable. Uh, for tens of millions of Americans across the country. So in that experience, you have a massive industry, massive, powerful industry in the insurance com- the insurance industry that's not happy with you, right? And they file suit. And then you're arguing a case in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is not a low-pressure situation, I imagine. Can you take us into what was going on in your mind and your heart when you were thinking about the power players in the game and the, the high stakes that were, were sort of at play? Well, I've argued a number of cases in the Ninth Circuit, but I did not argue that one because I was okay. still in office, so I engaged outside counsel. I, I was part of uh, a team of people who worked on the briefing in the case, but, um, but it was argued by, uh, uh, Jim Hunt, who, um, I had engaged, um, as counsel for us. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I had, um, um, I think a pretty good, uh, relationship with a lot of people in the industry, but there were several points where, uh, you know, if I felt that the industry was, or some large group of companies in the industry were taking advantage of consumers in an unfair way, um, then I stood my ground. And part of being effective in, uh, in law and in policy is being willing to stand your ground. Uh, and if there's power players involved and they care a lot about it, then that means uh, usually that you're doing something important. So... You know, that's uh, kind of what I've been accustomed to doing throughout my career, and um, so it wasn't unusual for me. John, I want to shift a bit and talk about the book that you and your wife, Catherine Wright Morrison, wrote together. It's called... Mavericks, The Lives and Battles of Montana's Political Legends. So it's nine stories of political legends in Montana history that, as the description says, remind us of the qualities that underpin effective leadership. I'm curious what inspired you to write the book and to hear a bit about those nine leaders that you highlight in it. What led us into uh, writing the book was that Montana had a history in the 20th century of fielding 
um, some of the nation's most important political figures. Uh, and uh, for a state with a relatively small population, that was remarkable. And so we set out to try to compile brief biographies of each of these people, focusing on kind of uh, significant political uh, battles that they got involved in and uh, why they did it. Jeanette Rankin, for example, uh, was uh, the first woman elected to Congress. Uh, she was very involved in the women's suffrage movement. She helped get women the right to vote in this country uh, and in Montana. She traveled to many states and was involved nationally in getting uh, the women the right to vote. <clears throat> she was elected uh, to Congress in 1916 uh, from Montana. Uh, and during that short two-year term, the subject of uh, whether America should enter World War I came up and she voted against it. <clears throat> there were 40-some people or so that did vote against America's entry into World War I, uh, but she was one of them. And it was not well received back home in Montana. And in uh, 1918, she was not reelected. She ran again in 1940 and was elected again. Uh, and by bizarre coincidence, Pearl Harbor uh, occurred in December 1941, and she was called upon to vote again whether we should enter World War. And she again voted against it. This time she was the only person in the entire Congress. Right. She stood alone and voted against World War II. Uh, and so she was uh, unelected uh, in 1942. Uh, but she was a, a major figure in the 20th century, and she came from Montana. Uh, Burton K. Wheeler uh, was um, a uh, high-profile national politician who led investigations of the Hardy administration in the 1920s, um, ran for uh, vice president with uh, Robert La Follette in 1924 uh, on a, uh, even though he had been elected as a Democrat, he broke away and ran uh, in a progressive party um, ticket, then came back into the Democratic Party. And in 1940, he was considered a challenger uh, for president and, uh, you know, only ultimately didn't uh, run again when uh, Roosevelt uh, decided to run for third term. Uh, Thomas Walsh, a very interesting guy, almost single-handedly uh, broke the Teapot Dome scandal, which was the largest uh, scandal in American uh uh, well, largest scandal certainly in the 20th century until Watergate, and it involved uh, g the giving away of the naval oil reserves in Wyoming. And uh, Walsh was a lawyer uh, by training who uh, uh, knew how to investigate and take depositions and uh, and apply the law. And he literally got on trains and went around America and did this investigation himself in the days when there weren't big congressional staffs. And he cracked this open, and it was a, a, a huge news event uh, that, you know, resulted in uh, much more open government and uh, protection of our national uh, resources. He was then Franklin Roosevelt's first choice for attorney general 
uh, when Roosevelt was elected in 1932, and he was uh, on a train with his new wife uh, going to Washington to be sworn in as attorney general, and he died uh, in the night on the train on the way to Washington. And uh, there to this day is historical debate about whether um, he died of natural causes with his new wife in the night uh, or whether he uh, was murdered because of various suspicious circumstances around uh, his murder. Uh, but he was a great lawyer uh, for many years and wasn't elected to, po uh, to uh, political office until he was in his 50s. Um, and uh, then, of course, Mike Mansfield, you know, uh, James Murray, uh, Lee Metcalf, and um, Ella Knowles is profiled in the book. She was the first uh, woman lawyer in Montana and the first woman uh, statewide political candidate for the Populist Party in the 1890s. Um, and Joseph Toole, the, the founding father uh, of Montana, who was our first governor and, and um, I believe our only three-term governor. Of all these nine sort of titans of Montana's political past, what is the through line? What is the what are the qualities that underpin effective leadership? And and I'm curious, also, what does effective leadership mean to you? What we observed in the people that we profiled in Mavericks was uh, that they uh, all worked well with Montanans and fought for Montanans, uh, no matter what their political beliefs. Uh, no matter what the beliefs of the Montanans were, uh, they they uh, had good relationships with people. But when there were important issues at hand, uh, they knew that they had to be prepared to fight. And uh, they stood up often with formidable uh, headwinds uh, and uh, fought the battles that they believed in. Uh, they marshaled other people effectively. They marshaled arguments effectively. They marshaled evidence effectively. Uh, and uh, for the most part, uh, not always, but mostly were successful. Um, and uh, so the bottom line is uh, that what they teach us is uh, that you should work well with everyone, but be prepared if you want to accomplish important things to go to battle. Uh, and, uh, to, you know, to realize that uh, there's going to be powerful forces on both sides and you better be ready to stand up in, in the wind if you're going to achieve something important. How do you see those leaders of, as having maintained their convictions? And did they do that in a rigid way or were they still able to sort of take in new information, what we would call in Leadership Montana sort of learning in public, right, under the Gracious Space Curriculum, can you both stand up against the wind with conviction and fight the battles and still be flexible and sort of malleable in your thinking as new information comes in? Well, the, the people that we profiled in Mavericks, uh, you know, were human beings and uh, they weren't uh, <clears throat> gods and they weren't um, superhuman. They had their faults. They made mistakes. Um, they had battles they shied away from. Um, and there's no question you got to pick your battles. Uh, political battles or uh, not just in government, but uh, political battles that all of us deal with in our lives and uh, in our careers. Um, 
involve the handling of capital, Let's call it social capital, uh, and uh, or political capital. And sometimes you have more social and political capital, and you can be a little bolder in what you do. Sometimes you don't have as much political capital or, or social capital, and you have to be a little more careful in what you do. Sometimes you take a pass and you uh, live to fight another day. Um, and sometimes, uh, you know, you can tell that the winds are blowing in the right direction and uh, it's, it's the right time and uh, you step in, you stand up in the wind and you fight the battle. Uh, the people who we profiled in the book had episodes like that. Thomas Walsh, for example, who was incredibly courageous uh, and virtually uh, standing alone sometimes in the Teapot Dome scandal, uh, had uh, not been as courageous uh, when uh, the Sedition Act was passed uh, that was uh, really discriminatory against German Americans and other American citizens. Uh, there were people who, uh, you know, who were profiled in that book who uh, did not oppose the sequestration of Japanese people in America, American people, Japanese American people. Um, and uh, there was, you know, widespread support for the camps that were created uh, f for them, and uh, that included, you know, our Montana leaders. But yet some of those people also, uh, you know, Mike Mansfield, for example, was uh, very brave in the way he stood up against the Vietnam War long before others did. I mean, he, Mike Mansfield was standing on the floor of the United States Senate counseling against American expansion in Vietnam in 1954. And so each of these people had in their careers uh, moments where they chose to take a pass and live to fight another day, and moments where they uh, marshaled their political capital and stood up in the wind and got something important done. So, John, you are a historian and an author of Montana politics, and you were an elect statewide elected official for eight years in the early 2000s, and here we are in 2022. I wonder if you can give us a sense from your perspective how politics or the political landscape has changed over the course of the time from your observation. That's a very interesting question, and it's an important one. Montana has certain uh, values and commitments that run throughout the history of the state from the beginning of the state to the present. But other things have changed. Uh, we were initially an agriculture and mining and timber state. And uh, in the last 50 years, we've evolved into a more uh, diversified economy. That's one thing that's changed. Uh, we have had, uh, particularly in the last 30 years, a lot of people move in here uh, who uh, don't have Montana family roots. Uh, that's another thing that's changed. Uh, the mining and uh, timber companies that dominated uh, the state uh, early on uh, have become less 
influential in the state's politics. Uh, and, of course, the media environment's changed, and money now has come into the game. Uh, so politics is played in a different way now because we have many different kinds of media uh, and we have a lot of money that comes into politics, although Montana legislative politics is, um, and state politics, the campaign contribution limits have kept those contributions down. Uh, but there are Montana values that have um, continued throughout. Montana uh, used to be a pretty strong Democratic state. Now it's a pretty strong Republican state. And I've given some thought to that. I'm not entirely sure uh, whether that represents a change in Montana or a change in the political parties. Uh, but I'll get back to you on that someday. <laughs> we are um, here again at the fourth session of the inaugural class of Leadership Montana's uh, Indigenous Immersion Initiative, which is really um, aimed at bridging the gaps between indigenous and non-indigenous communities. And after the third session, which was held on Blackfeet Nation, we were principally in Browning, you wrote a reflection um, and you said, we witnessed and began to reflect on the intergenerational trauma that the native peoples have suffered. There are no easy or quick solutions, but progress begins with understanding the trauma that our indigenous neighbors suffer even today. I would like to be able to adopt a policy and solve the problems facing Indian families and communities, but it will take time. The path to empathy and healing is long and the route is not clear. I am sure though, that the sign at the trailhead says, listen. So you're on the podcast, listen first, Montana. I wonder if you can just expand on that quote a little bit for us. Well, Leadership Montana, as you know, uh, Eric is uh, all about listening first and um, so that's uh, a, a strategy and a value that um, is brought to all of the Leadership Montana programs, including uh, this Indigenous Immersion Initiative, the inaugural Indigenous Immersion Initiative. And um, as the quote says, uh, you know, one of the reasons that I enrolled in this program uh, was, uh, you know, I have Indigenous uh, people on my family tree. Uh, and uh, as a public official, I uh, worked with uh, the tribal communities, um, and uh, it, it has always seemed to me that the um, the history of the way Native Americans have been treated is is uh, sad and unfair, uh, and the problems that face Native American communities are difficult, challenging. And I wanted to uh, enroll because I, I, I continue to search for answers about uh, what we can do better. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, but after the first couple of sessions, it became clear to me that uh, for a lot of these communities, um, they're not really ready to uh, start talking about solutions yet. Uh, what they are more interested in right now is is coming to terms with what's happened and what it's done to them and and where they are and what they have to work with. Um, and so uh, our 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 role in large part on this 
um, on this journey this year is uh, to listen and to and to try to understand uh, what uh, kind of trauma has uh, been done over the years and the effect that it continues to have on people and communities. Go down the lightning round. Do you have a book recommendation? Uh, the World is Flat, Tom Friedman. What's the most important thing you can teach your two daughters? To believe in yourself and look for opportunities to make the world a better place. What's a routine or a habit that you've developed that has improved your life? Well, I've always found that uh, a good way to manage stress and to stay healthy and steer away from uh, life style habits that aren't good for me is to exercise. So that might be walking, that might be running, that might be hiking. That's something I try to do every day. What is something that you care about deeply that we haven't talked about at all in this podcast? I care deeply um, about the legal system and about uh, the judicial branch of government. Uh, I think it's critically important that uh, Montanans and Americans uh, recognize that having a constitution and having uh, a judicial branch that protects that constitution is essential uh, to making sure that individual rights are protected. What would you say is the most important thing you've learned from Leadership Montana? Uh, to listen to others and learn from them. When you get a group of um, 30 or 40 people together who are um, all uh, people who've risen into leadership positions, uh, there is just a tremendous amount to learn. There's different kinds of personalities from different kinds of uh, organizations, uh, different kinds of jobs uh, who bring different kinds of skills and talents and perspectives and wisdoms. And uh, by listening to them, uh, it's um, about the best education you can have. Just a few more here. When you're afraid or overwhelmed, where do you turn? Uh, I, I, I spend time outdoors, uh, reflecting, meditating. I pray in my own way. Uh, and uh, when I'm having uh, moments of um, stress and um, concern, uh, that's where I go. What is something that made you feel like a kid recently? Could be something that made you laugh uncontrollably or feel giddy. This summer I went on a uh, backpack trip with my daughters and uh, several of their friends in the Wind River Range. And uh, I was the only person in the group over 35 and um, we were there for five days, and uh, uh, it was easy to feel young again. <laughs> I love that. Okay. Um, final question. What is your definition of leadership? Well, uh, ultimately, in my opinion, a great leader is someone who is able to marshal the energies and talents 
and work of other people to successfully accomplish important things. Different people have different answers to this question, I think. But, uh, you know, in my book, it has something to do with getting the job done. You know, it, it's true that it's not always whether you win the game. It, it, it's not wh whether you win or lose. It's how you play the game. Uh, but uh, the scoreboard also tells the story, uh, which is another saying that um, is that reflects the the idea that um, that if if you have uh, been a successful leader, uh, you get to the end of the road, and you can look back and you can see some important, valuable things that got done along the way. John Morrison, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My honor. Thank you, Eric. Thanks to John Morrison for taking the time to come on the show. And thanks to you for listening in. If you've enjoyed today's show and want to support Listen First Montana, please tell a friend about the show or post your favorite episode on social media. Those small steps can really help us connect these stories to more listeners. Our intro is a rendition of the Montana State song by Scott Gudger, and our other music is from Blue Dot Sessions. We'll see you in two weeks with our next episode. Until then, thanks for listening to Listen First, Montana.